Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aram Bastani. Tonight I have the immense pleasure of being joined by the immarcessible Moya Lothian and McLean. Moya, how are we? I'm great. What a new word to add to my vocabulary. Like Elton John, somehow I'm still standing, although please forgive my very, very croaky voice. I will still be here. I'm still soldiering through. I think it's passable. For people that are curious about that word, it was invented by uh, Thomas Cranmer for the uh, Common Book of Prayer. On tonight's show, we'll be discussing celeb hypocrisy on climate change. The Pope gives praise to someone that Keir Starmer recently slammed. And the IMF have come out and agreed with the left on what is driving inflation. First story. Matt Hancock today gave evidence to the COVID inquiry. As this module of the inquiry only concerns pandemic preparedness, Hancock was not asked about decisions he made after COVID-19 hit. And he had one central thesis in his testimony. The UK messed up because our pandemic planning was all done according to a mistaken doctrine. This was the key part. On stockpiles, I was told that we had a very significant stockpile of uh, PPE and we did. The problem was that it was extremely hard to get it out fast enough when the crisis hit. I was told that we were good at developing tests, and indeed we were. We, were, we developed a test uh, in the first few days after the genetic code of COVID-19 was published. The problem was there was no plan in place to scale testing uh, that, had any, um, that, was, that we could execute. Um, on antivirals, we had a stockpile of antivirals for a flu, but not for a coronavirus. On vaccines, I was concerned that we weren't in a strong enough position because we were reliant on manufacturing vaccines overseas. And I thought that in a pandemic scenario, force majeure would mean it would be hard to get hold of vaccine doses if they were physically manufactured overseas, no matter what our contracts said. And so I insisted that we pushed on domestic manufacture and uh, sought the funding to deliver on that. A, pro a plan was already in um, early development uh, to make that uh, happen. So in each of these cases, there was a plan, but the absolutely central problem with the planning in the UK was that the doctrine was wrong. And if I, maybe I should set this out now. In my, I've written it in my written statement. The attitude, the doctrine of the UK was to plan for the consequences of a disaster. Can we buy enough body bags? Where are we going to bury the dead? And that was completely wrong. Of course, it's important to have that in case you fail to stop a pandemic. But central to pandemic planning needs to be how do you stop the disaster from happening in the first place? How do you suppress the virus? That analysis was endorsed by Professor Devi Sredar, who has been a vocal critic of government policy since the first year of the pandemic. Sharing the clip, we just showed you, she tweeted this. 100% this, a focus was on where to bury the bodies rather than on how to contain spread until a scientific solution. Suppression didn't mean lockdown if adequate prep was done. That seems fair. But how much fault should Hancock himself share for us adopting the wrong doctrine? After all, there were countries in East Asia that had already learned this lesson from SARS-1. Why didn't we? Well, this answer from Hancock was instructive. I was also assured 
that the UK was one of the best placed countries in the world for responding to a pandemic. And indeed, in some areas categorized by the World Health Organization as the best place in the world. So just to give context to these, you know, this interaction between me as the new Secretary of State and my officials, at the same time, you haven't brought it up, but in one of the documents I got very early on, it stated clearly that we are well prepared. And that wasn't the civil servants' um, own assessment. That was the World Health Organization assessment of the UK. And I know that uh, Mr. Hunt referred to that last week. But you know, when you become the Secretary of State, you think about the challenges in front of you. In my case, I had a background in technology and the NHS desperately needed better technology. The NHS needed more people. Um, and we needed to be better at prevention of ill health across the board. Of course, prevention of a pandemic is part of that, but there's also a huge focus on, for instance, obesity. I took those as my three priorities. I continued the work on, uh, on the protection from these threats, but it, it's important to, um, to focus and you can understand that when you're assured by the leading global authority that the UK is uh, the best prepared in the world, uh, that is quite a significant reassurance. That turned out to be wrong. So Matt Hancock there explained that Britain was just falling in line with what was seen as best practice in much of the world. But he also gave an apology. I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had. I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. And... I also understand why, for some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. I understand that. I get it. Um, but it is honest and heartfelt. And I'm not very good at talking about my uh, emotions and how I feel. Um, but that is honest and true. Um, and all I can do is ensure that this inquiry gets to the bottom of it and that for the future we learn the right lessons so that we stop a pandemic in its tracks much, much earlier and that we have the systems in place ready to do that because I'm worried that they're being dismantled as we speak. That's a pretty astonishing phrase there at the end, they're being dismantled as we speak. Moya, what did you make of Matt Hancock's testimony today? Well, I find Matt Hancock a uniquely craven and sinister figure who seems to do anything possible for a spot in the limelight. And I, I think he's a completely unreliable narrator. But that doesn't mean that at some points an unreliable narrator will not tell the truth in order to try and protect their own back. Um, it's interesting what he's saying there. He's taking the line that I think he believes will protect him most. And I think there are elements of truth within it. You know, the government did adhere to a certain doctrine. He is trying to shoulder all the blame on this sort of shadowy idea of this was the information I was told. This is what I acted upon. All I could do was follow the advice that was given to me and the recommendations that were given to me and the recommendations said that we were doing well. But what we don't see in that clip is this during this inquiry, the QC who was questioning Hancock said that there was evidence for a year under Hancock's watch, that the main body that was charged with making sure we were prepared for a pandemic had 
failed to meet. And Hancock also did not attend lots of meetings of subcommittees of the National Security Council that had the responsibility for pandemic planning. So it wasn't like he was particularly proactive or on top of the meagre provisions that are in place in order to make sure that we were prepared for a pandemic. Uh, also, he Hancock talks about the sort of main doctrine that came from this exercise Cygnus, I don't know how I'm saying that right, um, which is the basic central simulation for a pandemic that was carried out by the UK in 2016 and gave birth to all these recommendations and provisions that we were meant to implement and that Hancock says actually was doing the wrong thing. But lots of these recommendations that were within that weren't implemented in the first place, particularly, and this is really important, particularly the provisions that were meant to protect adult social care. And during his evidence giving, Matt Hancock also said that, you know, the reason that those provisions weren't in place, protecting social care, the recommendations that have been given, because as we know, during the pandemic, adult social care, including care homes, were hit massively by COVID. They were ravaged. You know, it felt, it felt like deaths every single week. It was, it was horrendous. Um, and he blamed this, the reason that adult social care was not protected, because he said that local authorities were legally responsible for its provision and that the DH, DHSC didn't have the requisite levers to act. And what you're getting there is just merely trying to shift the blame for the way the Tories have deliberately set up social care in this country and deliberately devolved it to local authorities who also don't have the funding and had their funding decimated by austerity, austerity over the last you know 13 years so that it doesn't, the buck doesn't ultimately stop with him. He was the minister for health. You know, you can go into this and say, we weren't prepared in this way because we we're following the central doctrine. Why did you have to keep following that doctrine? Why, when it became very obvious that people were dying at a massive rate, particularly in sites like adult social care and care homes, did you not change tack instead of lying to the public again and again and again and doing things like discharging vulnerable patients from hospital into care homes where the virus was spread at a ridiculous rate. Matt Hancock, we have seen lies and lies and lies. And even if he is pulling out grains of truth right now, I do not think that is going to be enough to shield him from what I hope is a large amount of finger pointing. Um, but ultimately with this inquiry, what I do worry about is that nothing will come of it. We have so many inquiries in the UK and for a while we, they get attention and we say, we're going to learn these lessons. We're going to learn these lessons. Do we ever learn these lessons? That's my question here. What, what will this inquiry actually produce or do ultimately other than a lot of documents that we can point to in the future and say, well, this happened and this happened, this happened, but not actually any material changes in the way that we operate and do things because the government always has different priorities unless they are admired in the crisis itself. Yeah, I think the important inquiries are so bang on. I mean, people who uh, can cast their minds back to the Hutton inquiry, which was about who bore responsibility for Britain's uh, involvement in the Iraq war, when that gave its report, I think it was in 2016, we thought, well, that's the end of Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell in public life. We could not have been more wrong. So the, the idea that inquiries necessarily lead to positive outcomes and consequences, I think, is, as you said there, Moya, uh, very mistaken. This was the takeaway from ITV's Rob Peston regarding Hancock's evidence session. It is pretty clear that the COVID-19 inquiry will recommend the employment of a senior minister whose almost sole responsibility will be preparing for and protecting the UK from emergencies, on a scale of the COVID disaster, he or she would be a minister for national resilience. Hancock says that it would be crucial for such a minister to, quote, have the ear of the prime minister. A minister for national resilience strikes me personally as a bit of a strange title. Would this person be invested with special powers? Would they be privy to state secrets regarding things like biological warfare, 
that not even the Prime Minister can access or other senior members of the Cabinet, because what is being described there is a leadership role. And in a national crisis, the leader is meant to be the Prime Minister. An outlandish idea, I know. Of course, for Britain to be well prepared for a future pandemic, one thing we will definitely need is a well-motivated workforce. And the signs on that front aren't particularly good because consultants, the most senior doctors in the NHS, have just voted overwhelmingly to go on strike. 86% of them voted for industrial action on a turnout of 71%. Like junior doctors, they are demanding pay restoration. Consultants will go on strike for two days from the 20th of July, which will follow a five-day strike from junior doctors from the 13th the 18th of July, which, by the way, is the longest strike of its kind in the history of the NHS. However, in news that will come as a relief to the Tory government, the Royal College of Nurses have failed to meet the threshold required for further strike action. 84% of those who voted in their latest ballot did vote to strike. However, only 43% voted. There was a turnout below 50%. Therefore, the strike will not go ahead. One explanation for that, something I've heard a few times, is that given the union has seen thousands, tens of thousands, frankly, of people joining it in recent months, it's been that bit harder to get over the threshold of 50%. It's a good thing to have lots of new members, but it can come with downsides. Next story. There has been stubbornly high inflation across much of the world over the last 12 months. In Britain, it's been particularly bad, but it's been well above target in the US and across much of Europe too. While the highs of last winter no longer hold, in Britain, inflation was running at 8.7% in May, while in the Eurozone, it was at 6.1%. Too much inflation is bad. One reason why is because if your wages fail to keep track with inflation, you're getting poorer in real terms. Last year, United Union published research saying that the principal cause of high inflation was, wait for it, profit, something they call greedflation. At the time, they were mocked by those in the economic establishment. But now, they have a surprising and somewhat powerful ally who agree with them. It's the International Monetary Fund. Here's what was posted on the IMF blog yesterday. Europe's inflation outlook depends on how corporate profits absorb wage gains. It goes on to say this. Rising corporate profits account for almost half the increase in Europe's inflation over the past two years as companies increase prices by more than spiking costs of imported energy. In other words, profits count more than what was going on with Russia. Now that workers are pushing for pay rises to recoup lost purchasing power, companies may have to accept a smaller profit share if inflation is to remain on track to reach the European Central Bank's 2% target in 2025. Now, to help visualize what that looks like, here's a graph from that blog showing where inflation has been coming from. As you can see, from mid-2021, profits account for more inflation than import prices and far more than labor costs. So despite the tendency of the political class and the sheep, frankly, across much of the media to talk about a wage price spiral, what we're seeing instead is a profit price spiral where profiteering has been the primary cause of inflation, and now workers are trying to catch up. In other words, workers wanting higher pay is a response to this inflation, not its cause. To repeat, this is the IMF, often viewed as the last word in the economic orthodoxy's establishment. We've been told relentlessly that the war in Ukraine meant runaway inflation was unavoidable, but that wasn't entirely true, at least according to this report, because the primary cause was apparently corporate greed. 
The IMF's Deputy Managing Director, Gitta Gopinath, has urged companies to abandon efforts to protect their margins in the face of higher costs. Speaking at a conference in Portugal, she said this, If inflation is to fall quickly, firms must allow their profit margins, which have shot up during the past two years, to decline and absorb some of the expected rise in labour costs. Gopinath also added that some wage catch-up is to be expected. That's a quote. And I have to say, this is a huge deal. It's a dagger to the heart of everything the government has been saying about inflation and how to address it. The IMF is an unlikely ally, isn't it, Moya? But it's striking to see them basically outlining what trade unions here have been saying for 12 months, the likes of Sharon Graham and Mick Lynch, while being relentlessly mocked by supposedly clever people in media and politics. Yeah, well, I don't think we're going to see the IMF on the picket lines anytime soon. Um, but this is obviously very stark contract to what the likes of Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, and Jeremy Hunt have been saying about the causes of inflation. Because they have been beating that drum, which says wages to blame for inflation. You can't possibly have a pay rise. That's the problem. And meanwhile, they've turned a blind eye to profiteering by big business. And I actually want to highlight a story in The Guardian today that really is so pertinent for this exact problem, which is about telecoms firms like BT and Vodafone that initially wanted to capitalize on the demand for their services during the pandemic. Okay? They're like, okay, everyone wants to use our Wi-Fi, our connectivity, but we don't know, but inflation's at 0%. And usually the contracts that these telecoms firms had would allow mid-contract price rises in linked to inflation. But inflation was at 0%, so they couldn't up the cost during the pandemic. So what did BT do? What did Vodafone do? Well, they added a new clause into these contracts that they had with customers, which said that they could, in fact, impose mid-contract price rises that were inflation plus 3.9%, which meant that if inflation was at zero, they would always get an increase of mid-contract increases on the, on, on the prices of at least 3.9%. And other, you know, giant telecoms companies followed. You've got at least six different out of 11 big telecom companies that now have these increases. And there's a really good quote within this story from an insider at Vodafone, which says, Vodafone didn't want to be above BT as that would bring undue attention, but they didn't want to go lower as it would be a missed revenue opportunity. Now, What's happened that inflation has skyrocketed and that 3.9% is no longer needed in order to you know, bring in this revenue that they don't want to miss? The rate has remained. So customers who are getting these mid-contract increases are getting the massive increases that are linked to the inflation price rate plus 3.9%. That is such a key example of this greedflation. It's not wage increases pushing that. It is purely companies that want to profit as much as possible. That mentality of this missed revenue is absolutely at the heart of what is going on with inflation in this country. And what you see instead is big businesses which have taken on this weird individualized victim position where they say, yeah, well, but our costs have gone up. You know, BT's saying, our costs have gone up. We need to provide these 5G services. We need to roll out this. Oil companies say, oh, our costs have gone up. Yeah, but you're a multi-million or billion pound enterprise but you're, and your customers who are bearing these costs that you're passing on and people like, you know, Linda in Merseyside who's going to have to choose between making a monthly mortgage payment, which has gone up, or having Wi-Fi. And this Guardian story also highlights the wider thing, which is the toothlessness of the regulators within the country that are meant to look after you know, these big businesses. You've got Ofcom, Ofcom, which is the telecoms regulator. Can't regulate prices, really, but they can intervene in specific cases. But what they've said in this, this 
this instance is not that we are going to, you know, have a word. They said Ofcom has repeatedly called on providers to think very carefully about whether significant price rises are justified during an exceptional period of hardship for many people, which is the same attitude the government has, which is also why they've been focusing on, you know, telling uh, uh, workers they can't have a price rise, wage increase, instead of telling businesses that they have to cut their profits immediately and and stop passing on costs to workers who can't afford them. It's because they can't really do anything. They don't want to do anything because they don't want to scare people off. They're absolutely in the pocket of big business. It's not the government who runs this country, big business do. And instead they call on the morality of big business to, instead of regulating them. Big business is not going to sacrifice its profits. Big business doesn't have a morality. We've seen that, you know, everything from these massive telecoms companies, these oil and gas giants to individual landlords, etc., who are not going to keep rents down when their mortgages are going up. Feeling squeezed is now this subject position where even those who are objectively fine financially can tap in to feeling like they're less fine because they see a drop in any potential massive profits and they see a reason to panic. And if they can, they will pass those costs on to those who can least afford to cover them and people who can't pass those costs on further because there's no, they don't have any assets. They don't own anything where they can pass those costs on. So we're seeing the people at the very bottom suffer the most. Greed inflation is the key problem with the economy at the moment, but government aren't going to do anything because they simply can't. They've sold their souls too long ago in order to, be, they can't control these companies. Full stop. They're useless. Yeah, so well said. Now, I'd add one thing, which you just touched upon uh, a moment ago there, Moya, which is high inflation has been seized on by big business as an opportunity to cut labor costs. So I'll give you two examples. The CW, the Communication Workers Union, represents postal workers and BT workers. BT workers are offered, let's say, a, you know, it's, it's, you know, this isn't the exact number, but say 5 6% pay rise. And then the services that they provide to customers, well, Sorry, guys, you know, inflation is 11%, so we're going to have to put your bills up, your broadband bills up 11%. But you're not giving your workers an 11% pay rise. The same with regards to postal workers. The price of stamps goes up disproportionately in relation to what postal workers are being paid. Well, you say to the consumer, inflation is 11%, stamps have to go up X amount. You say to workers, sorry, we can't give you a pay rise, keep up with inflation. It's an opportunity for big business to make money and to cut costs. We've been saying this for 12 months here at Navarra Media. And just like people like Mick Lynch or Sharon Graham, we've been mocked, we've been derided. Clearly, the most obvious solution when you're confronted with all of this is price caps. It works. You're not allowed to say it, of course. You meant to talk about interest rates instead. I guess we'll find out uh, whether that's going to work with regards to inflation. I suspect not. Next story. Universal free school meals for primary school children are already being piloted in several labour-controlled parts of the country, including Wales and London, and they're already part of government policy in Scotland. In Tower Hamlets, you're set to see secondary school kids getting free school, school meals too by the end of next spring. But the British Labour Party have now ruled out implementing the policy on a nationwide basis. A party spokesperson told The Times this. This is not Labour policy and we have no plans to implement it. Labour recognises the cost of living crisis that families are facing across the country. That's why our policy of universal free breakfast clubs for primary school pupils will make a big difference to families facing financial pressure while giving children the best start to their day. Party leadership justified the decision by pointing to the cost of universal free school meals. The policy would come with a price tag of £1 billion. And Rachel Reeves is committed to reducing the spending commitments made in Labour's general election manifesto last time. 
The intervention from the leadership appears to be an attempt to preempt a push for universal free school meals at Labour's upcoming national policy forum. That's the meeting where representatives from trade unions, the shadow cabinet, and local and regional administrations, alongside party members, get to hash out which core policies go into the next manifesto. And according to the Financial Times, there had been a broad push for the adoption of free school meals. They reported this. Pressure from city mayors and devolved administrations has brought the universal free school meals issue to a head. London's Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan has provided £130 million to ensure all primary school children in the capital can receive free school meals for next academic year. He recently urged the government to, quote, follow a London's lead and fund free school meals, arguing, quote, families need this now more than ever. The Labour First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, has begun a phased rollout of free school meals to all primary school children in Wales by 2024. Andy Burnham, Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester, has said his authority's budget is too small to fund free primary school lunch meals locally, but he has urged the Labour leadership to embrace the policy nationally because of its, quote, many, many societal benefits. The motion in favour of universal free school meals at the Policy Forum has been put forward by the CWU Union, the Communication Workers Union. One of their officials told the Financial Times this. Scotland, Wales and London have already introduced universal free school meals for primary school kids, uh, making a huge difference to their lives. It's saddening that the rest of England is missing out on initiatives like this because Labour's national leadership seems too frightened of, of upsetting the incredibly wealthy. The policy is also backed by the teachers' union, the NEU. Moya, what do you make of this move by Keir Starmer? Ugh, it's just classic Starmer, isn't it? Take a policy that is, you know, universalistic, would bring a lot of people on board, only seems to have upsides. Doesn't even cost that much in the grand scheme of things. I know we're saying one billion, but if you look at public spending, the the benefits, which I think we're going to talk about, are so much greater than that sum of money. Um, and what does Starmer do? He scraps it. He says, we're not going to do that. Why? Simply because I think out of political spite, it is a policy that was baked into the 2017 and 2019 manifestos. It was passed overwhelmingly at Labour Conference and I think in 2022. Uh, it was fully costed before. It was going to be paid for with, I think, the VAT school fees proposition, which now is money apparently ring-fenced for recruiting teachers. We can argue about which would be more valuable. But with Starmer, it's just, you know, he sees anything at that is providing for people as somehow luxury. This is not a luxury. This is a necessity of a policy when you look at the economic climate and where school kids are living now. it's We've talked about this so many times, but it's this idea that somehow just because maybe some children who are slightly better off than other children might benefit from universal school meals, is that really a reason not to do it? Children are going so hungry right now. Free school meals at the moment are only offered to families that, that where households earn about £17,000. So many, I think it's something like 900,000 children, more than that, need free school meals in this country. Cost, we're being squeezed from all sides. It's very difficult to look at the landscape and say that introducing free school meals right now would somehow be a net negative rather than a positive. It takes a huge burden off families from the get-go and breeds a huge amount of goodwill. And as I said, we're going to talk about the other benefits, economic and holistic, later. But it just shows the small-mindedness of this labour. When you look at the reports about why they're not doing it, Rachel reads that that phrase comes up. She wants to practice fiscal discipline. I hate that phrase. Fiscal discipline, all it means is being tight-fisted in the wrong areas. Fiscal discipline would be to implement 
free school meals universally, you know, primary school age children specifically, but I would say secondary school age children as well, anyone in education in my view, because that in the long term would be, the cost benefits would be so much greater than simply the initial spending of one billion. That would be fiscal discipline, creating a, you know, school age population of well-fed children and taking the burden of families who have already had their their bank accounts cleaned out by everything from rising mortgages to telecom bills to the price of their weekly shop. That would be fiscal discipline. That would be sensible, but no, because it's an initial upfront cost, Labour have to say, oh, that's too much. Oh, feeding children, that's a luxury. It doesn't make any sense. They've all lost their minds. Yeah, on the numbers, we're, we're going to talk about that more in a moment. There's a lot of f- food for thought there. Uh, interesting uh, uh, choice of words. I, I remember in 2017 when Jeremy Corbyn outlined a policy of universal free school meals. I believe it was for primary school kids. And I've got the polling here. There was an Insta poll by YouGov. And this was in 2017, right? The cost of living crisis was not, was not like now. 52% supported it. 27% opposed. So you've, you've almost got a two to one there. Uh, that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, and obviously, things have got a lot worse since. Important to say in Town Hamlets, where, of course, you have Mayor Lutfer Rachman and a, a complete wipeout of Labour in local elections, uh, not this year, but the, the, year, the year before, they implemented free school meals for primary school kids under Rachman, uh, and it was kept by Labour. And now he's introducing free school meals for secondary school kids. So if Tower Hamlets can do it, which is a very young borough, by the way, I think it's the youngest borough in the country. There are lots of kids in Tower Hamlets you know, you have to wonder why it's not achievable at a national level. Then finally, Moya, and you make such a good point there, this idea that, oh, we have to help the poorest. Nobody has any money. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Lots of people have money, rich have money, but the the middle class, the lower middle class, aspirational working class and aspirational middle class, which apparently the Labour right and Tony Blair kind of acolytes really care about, they don't have any cash. People don't have enough money to have kids anymore. You know, there's a lot of polling on this. We've got a, a birth rate in this country about 1.5. And when you poll people and say, well, how many kids would you like to have? You know, it, it bumps up a fair bit. People can't afford to have as many children or as a large families as they would like. So this idea that, oh, well, we should just help the people that really need it. You know, the average mum and dad out there with young kids is struggling with childcare. They're struggling with their mortgages. They're struggling with rent. They're struggling with energy bills. The idea that this wouldn't help them and as you say, Moya, wouldn't also offer a really important wider social good, making sure kids are fed, which, by the way, Labour tacitly accepts, otherwise they wouldn't be talking about these breakfast clubs. They clearly think it matters. The question is, how much does it matter? Obviously, it doesn't matter enough. Universal free school meals might make moral and political sense, but what about Labour's argument that we just can't afford them right now? Well, Interesting you ask. A recent report by Price Waterhouse Cooper suggests that even in straight financial terms, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are just plain wrong. In 2022, PwC did a cost-benefit analysis looking at the financial costs and benefits of expanding free school meals. Interestingly, they looked at two scenarios. First, expanding school meals to everyone on universal credit, their children. Uh, That would be a change from the current system where a child is only entitled if their household receives benefits and has an annual income below £7,400. So you need two uh, conditions met. Second, they looked at universal free school meals just for everyone, regardless of income. These were their results. Over a 20-year period, PwC calculated expanding free school meals to every child whose household received universal credit would cost $6.4 billion, but create core benefits of $8.9 billion and wider benefits of $16.2 billion. For universal free school meals, the cost would be $24 billion, with £41 billion in core benefits and £58 billion in wider benefits. 
According to PwC's analysis, core benefits include things such as increased cost savings to schools who would need to spend less time on catch-up programs due to better school attendance, as well as things like lower costs for the NHS due to longer-term health benefits, as well as higher tax returns to the government thanks to improvements to students' lifetime earnings. Now, I understand lots of that is very complex modelling, But for the life of me, I can't understand why you wouldn't extend free school meals to people whose parents are on universal benefits, universal credit rather. Wider benefits to the overall uh, economy clearly are compelling. And to dismiss that out of hand, I find rather ridiculous. Moya, is limiting free school meals a false economy? It's complete short-sightedness. And it comes from this, we always go back to Thatcher, but this is idea that somehow public services should not be for the public and that public service should be as limited or constrained as possible. And the, the, what we discussed earlier, this, this bizarre sort of tangled up logic that, oh, we can't do this because it might benefit someone who's slightly wealthier off. It, it's just a shield in order to make sure that we're not actually providing for people that need it. As, as we've covered, everyone, like, pretty much most people need it right now. The people who'd be receiving this, are, you know, people within, I think, state schools. It, you look at private schools, they've already got their free school meals because they've paid for it by massive tuition fees. Their meals are all provided. Um, I know that's not technically free, but you get what I'm saying. It's It's this idea that somehow, you know, children, feeding children should be off the table, that it isn't something we need to do, that is an extra, a bonus. And we see this so much with public services. Everything is now, you know, an add-on, an extra bonus. And as you t- as you pointed out there, one thing I find really distressing about this particular iteration of the Labour Party is the way they split hairs and care so much. Like, you know, iteration, some iterations before about the sort of presentation of these ideas. They just cannot put them forward to the chest. So they do say, oh, we're going to do breakfast clubs because that sounds less radical in some way than saying we're going to feed children at school. We're going to do a breakfast club. We're not going to give them free school meals, but we will do a breakfast club. It's just so cowardly. It makes me really upset. I got free school meals um, and there were huge, you know, my family was a lower middle class family. We weren't super poorly off we we got benefits but i benefited from free school meals we were a household who didn't have loads of income and that was a huge weight off my single mother and it's one of you know i never had to think about bringing in food from home or having to like where we would afford this when money was particularly tight that was a massive boon to my education it was a massive boon to my health i was fed regularly at school throughout my entire you know 18 years within the education system this should be something that every child benefits from. Not having to worry about where your next meal comes from is only going to be a advantage to school children. God knows they need it right now. It's, I don't understand why we think security, food security particularly, is a luxury. But if perhaps Labour took more of a stance on this and followed, you know, actually bold enough to say that you know what, it doesn't matter how we frame this or whether people attack us, we're going to push ahead with this policy of free school meals and you will see the benefits very quickly. I think they would find that all this, you know, imagined pushback would only come from wings of the Conservative Party and that actually households and the family, wherever they sit on the political spectrum, will find themselves pretty on board, like on board very fast with a policy that sees their children fed at no extra cost to themselves. So true. And I think, you know, you can convey this in ways that, you know, Conservative voters love. You could say that We'll have certain conditions on the kind of food that uh, caterers can procure. It'll have to be local or relatively local. It'll have to be British produce where where possible. But put a British flag on it if you want. I, you know, I don't care. 
you know, the, the idea that you can't package this and make it very amenable to Tory votes, I think is absolutely spot on, uh, Moya. Somebody mentioned in the comments, have you seen the film Breakfast Club? Of course, Emilio Estevez, who, who could uh, forget. And also just quickly more as well, more, one more point you, you made there about, you know, Breakfast Club's just being kind of cozy and sounding quite cute. This looks at the idea of feeding children as threatening, right? I mean, Schools are meant to be engines of meritocracy. I mean, I don't like the idea of meritocracy. I mean, it was originally coined by Michael Young. It was a, it was a satire. The book's called you know, Meritocracy. But even if you believe in a meritocracy and schools are meant to be engines of meritocracy, surely you support the idea that kids go to school to learn and they should have the best possible food they can have within reason to, to be in the best state to perform. The idea that one kid whose parents might not be, you know, on top of things, don't make the packed lunch, don't give the kid cash, whatever. The idea that kid should suffer and can't perform and can't study as effectively as somebody else who happens to be wealthier, I mean, that, that just strikes me as supremely unjust. Either you think these places should be engines of meritocracy or not. Seems quite obvious to me. I mean, maybe, again, maybe we're, maybe we're unfashionable and more. I don't think so because the YouGov polling seems to indicate that's a broadly held view. Pax Ola with two pounds on YouTube Super Chat. Having a go at Labour again. Come on, guys. Very happy to have a, a go at Labour when uh, I disagree with them. I think they're completely wrong about this. I think they're morally implicitly wrong. I think we've just given you the economic arguments with regards to the social return on, on investment if you do feed kids. Uh, and it's important to say this, you know, if we do have a general election next year or the year after, we will criticise the Labour government when we think they're wrong. And we'll do that for two reasons, because it's the morally right thing to do, but also because there are very few media outlets in this country which report things fairly. There are very few media outlets who don't pick a side. You know, we, we know what we're talking about here, right? Bits of the BBC, bits of the Guardian, will bash the Tories whenever they can. When Labour does the exact same thing, you don't hear a peep. Conversely, and by the way, it's far worse, when you have Labour do something, the right-wing press are all over them like a, like a rash. We are fair, and we try and stick with our principles in our reporting and in our coverage. If you like that idea, it's a very rare idea in British media, I know, then go to univiromedia.com forward slash support. Help us grow. We've got, what, 338,000 subscribers here on YouTube. Wouldn't it be great in a few years if we had a million? So, of course, hit subscribe. But if you can give us some of your well-earned cash, we appreciate that too. Keep your tweets coming on the hashtag NavarroLive. And of course, the Super Chats. Welcome to the next story. Ken Loach is one of Britain's most critically acclaimed at film directors. He's part of a select group of directors who have won the prestigious Palme d'Or twice and the Cannes Jury Prize three times. He's also won a BAFTA, as well as awards at the Berlin and Venice Film Festivals. For some people, however, none of this matters because Loach was a high-profile supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and has been an outspoken critic of Israel. Now, I understand someone who disagrees with Loach's politics. We live in a free society and being able to disagree with someone is kind of the point. But I've often seen figures on the Labour right say that Loach isn't actually an especially successful director. He's just an irrelevant crank. Just utterly stupid. Though that's often all you'll hear when these kinds of people are discussing the other side. One person who disagrees with that assessment is Pope Francis. He recently received Loach alongside hundreds of other artists at the Vatican. The New York Times wrote the story up. Their headline reads as thus. 
Pope, hosts, artists in Sistine Chapel, even some who attracted controversy. The event was part of a broader effort to engage with artists as the Roman Catholic Church did in the past. Pope Francis also urged them to pursue social justice through their work. What an incredible message. To be clear, the controversial artist here isn't Ken Loach, but Andres Serrano, a photographer whose works include the controversial Piss Christ. The NYT goes on to report this. The gathering was held to mark the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Vatican Museum's collection of modern and contemporary art. Inaugurated by Pope Paul VI in June 1973, the collection includes works by Van Gogh, Francis Bacon, Marc Chagall, and Matisse, and pieces by contemporary artists like the photographers Rinko Caucci, Bill Armstrong, and Mimo Giudice, and the new media artist collective Studio Azzurro. Francis told the group that neither art nor faith can leave things simply as they are. They change, transform, move, and convert them. Art can never serve as an anesthetic. It brings peace, yet far from deadening consciences, it keeps them alert. The article proceeds to add this with specific reference to Loach. Francis also called on the artists to, quote, not forget the poor. They too have need of art and beauty and usually have no voice to make themselves heard. Words that resonated with the British film director, Ken Loach. It's very clear from what the Pope says that he is demanding social justice and harmony in the world, which those in power are destroying in the way they destroy the planet, Mr. Loach said later. He told us to remember the poor. I think he means with social justice, which means giving power to the poor, not just a few pence from your pocket. Less than a month ago, Jamie Driscoll, the Labour mayor for the north of Tyne, was blocked by the Labour Central Party from standing again. Why? Because he shared a platform with Ken Loach discussing his last three films that have been about the northeast. Do you know what I think is really interesting? The day before Pope Francis received Ken Loach at the Sistine Chapel, do you know where Keir Starmer was? Go on, tell me, tell me, do you know where Kassama was, Aaron? I do know, but you you tell me. Keir Starmer was at the annual summer party thrown by Rupert Murdoch and his son and heir, Lachlan Murdoch, which I, I think pretty much tells you everything you need to know about the priorities here and what really matters to, as I've said before, this iteration of the Labour Party. It, Starmer is trying to do a return to sort of 1997 and follow the exact same playbook that Tony Blair followed. But I would say even without the sort of convictions that Tony Blair had of this idea of a third way. So Starmer is approaching what he sees as the key power makers. He's cutting out any sort of dissent from the ranks of the left. He's cozying up to Murdoch in the hope that somehow this will mean that he is blessed by the establishment, but the political landscape has completely changed. It means selling your soul in a way that is so rotting to your insides that it results in things like saying we're not going to do adopt a policy which allows free school meals for school children because we have to practice fiscal discipline. I really think it's the Starmer's Labour is sort of like a driverless train, personally. Um, and I, the Pope Francis' uh, reception of filmmakers like Ken Loach also shows to me how any sort of dissent within Labour's ranks that threatens to expose the route that, that Kit Starmer is taking the party down, which is, as I've said, one that kind of abandons that compassion, that empathy, that real focus on working people and making their lives better and listening to those voices and platforming them and instead focuses on this sort of imagined focus group of middle England voters who I don't really think exist in the way that Starmer and co 
believe them to and their concerns which they think you know is about being fiscally disciplined and immigration and all these other bugbears that the Tories have gone on and on about for years but don't actually matter to the average person who really just wants to make sure that they can pay for their weekly food shop anybody who sort of challenges the narratives that Starmer's putting forward about what matters to Labour and anyone who shows up the sort of moral hollowness that is now at the centre of the leader of the opposition's office and the people that surround him, I think that that's the real thing that Starmer hates so much and wants kicked out. It's not about protecting any sort of minority group and we could go very much into why uh, but in particular I don't think that Keir Starmer is, cares that much about you know protecting minority demographics within the Labour Party. We could look at, you know, the treatment of Jewish members once he decided that that crisis was over. Okay. And also the treatment of, you know, black members within the Labour Party. We could talk about the treatment of trans members and politicians within the Labour Party. These are all minority groups who need protection, but have been abandoned as soon as no longer seen as politically feasible for Keir Starmer, or have been abandoned if they happen to fall on the wrong side of the political line that Keir Starmer wants to hear from. Um, And... You, I, I don't particularly put much stock in um, any establishment figure. So you know, Pope Francis co-signing Ken Loach's to me is just an interesting comparison to the way he's been treated by Keir Starmer. But I imagine Keir Starmer will find it quite embarrassing because someone like Pope Francis is the exact sort of establishment figure that he also wishes to be co-signed by in his like, imaginary little focus group. Um, so yeah, all in all, in all it's, it, it's just a bit humiliating for this man to keep taking stands. But as I said time and time again, Keir Starmer is a bad politician. He doesn't have good political instincts. All he is driven by, I think, is the imaginary focus group, a bit of ego, and a lot of political spite. I suspect he's very useful in the situation he's in now. Uh, but as some polling has talked about, we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, people don't really know what he believes in or thinks. In a crisis situation, that may be to his detriment. Important to say as one more, look, the Catholic Church has 1.3 billion adherents. So uh, when you're talking about people representing wider civil society, there's a lot of people that listen to that chat. Um, So yeah, this idea that several dozen right-wing Labour weirdos in the the M25 London Labour clique get to decide who Ken Loach is, just preposterous. The guy's won three jury prizes at Cannes. Like he's, he's the greatest living British director. Crazy and they think they can cancel him. Crazy, crazy. These people are completely detached from any sort of broader reality. And next and final story. I love this one, by the way. Like many music festivals, Glastonbury is an opportunity to imagine different forms of living. Just for a few days, people elevate personal relationships, art, and friendship above the rat race of work. For some, that's a break from the norm. For others, it can trigger a change in how they engage with the world. And Glastonbury management certainly take their responsibilities seriously when it comes to climate change. Here's the energy policy on the festival website. Global climate change uh, continues to present the biggest threat to our planet. Here at Glastonbury Festival, we are committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and using clean energy sources whenever possible. That page proceeds to explain precisely how the festival has sought to minimise its carbon footprint as much as possible. And this is really, really impressive. In 2023, all of Glastonbury Festival's power 
will be met by renewable energy and renewable uh, fuels. All generators across the festival sites, including those that power the pyramid stage, will run on sustainable, renewable, palm oil-free HVO fuel. That's uh, hydrogenated uh, vegetable oil made from waste cooking oil, helping to reduce life cycle CO2 emissions by up to 90%. All production areas will either be powered by low-impact fossil fuel-free electricity or will run on solar PV and battery hybrid systems. There's more. A temporary wind turbine in, installed alongside a solar panel and battery system will produce up to 300 kilowatt of energy per day and power food stalls in Williams Green. Clean energy from the festival's own 200 kilowatts per hour, I think it is, solar PV array, as well as our anaerobic digester and 125 kilovolts biogas plant power, you tell me, sounds impressive, provide energy for festival offices and some production areas, as well as helping to charge some battery systems in order to reduce our on-site emissions, a small fleet of electric vehicles will be used to transport artists around the site to their performances. Seriously impressive stuff. And by the way, there was a lot more that we've not included because that would have just taken five minutes. A Glastonbury Festival on this issue in particular have really put their money where their mouth is. And yet despite all these measures, attendees at the festival would have seen various helicopters flying overhead. One of those included Elton John. Now, I don't support the use of helicopters as a private form of transport, but Mr. John is in his 70s and this was his last ever UK concert. If you're going to make an exception for anyone, it's him. But not everybody traveling by chopper was a pop music icon. And it's hard to see why they couldn't travel by car, train or taxi. One such person was Holly Willoughby, presenter on This Morning and former bestie of Philip Schofield. Miss Willoughby and her husband arrived at the festival via helicopter from Battersea. This is absurd, not least because the train from London Paddington to Castle Carry is one hour and 45 minutes. Where I'm from in Bournemouth, which is much close to Somerset, that journey is two and a half hours. But London's rail privilege, and yes, that's a thing, was lost on Willoughby, who went to a festival embracing a post-carbon agenda in the ultimate gas guzzler. This is all the more bizarre since Willoughby herself said in 2020 that the climate crisis was impacting the mental health of her three children. Back then, she was speaking to two climate activists, Pippa Best and Ellie Smith, who described how thinking about climate change had given them anxiety and chest pains. Here's what Willoughby said at the time. I've got my three children, they watch Newsround. It's something that's part of school and they watch it. They come home and more recently I noticed that they talk about it a lot. We've always been quite environmental in our home, as much as we can, but they're talking about it in a different way now, the same as what you've seen with the bushfires, all sorts of things. And they do worry about it. Their questioning has changed. Actually, it's become quite fearful. And I'm wondering, as a parent, how do we deal with that? Because it's not just affecting adults, it's affecting our children too. As a parent, how can I deal with climate change? Holly, start by not getting a helicopter to a festival when the train can get you there in under two hours. Just a thought. Now, the headlines this stuff generates undermines so much good work that people like Glastonbury Festival do, who are clearly very serious about the climate crisis. And this is worst of all, it allows the right-wing press to present people who care about climate change as hypocrites, when in reality, they're talking about a tiny minority of millionaire celebrities. But not all millionaire celebrities, I should add. Compare Willoughby's chosen mode of transport to rock god Dave Grohl. He didn't just take the train to Glastonbury. He also posed for a selfie with a rail worker. 
That's what an icon looks like. Moya, am I being unfair? Should celebrities be allowed the occasional helicopter ride as a little treat? <laughs> Actually, I was the one in the private helicopter. Um, no, obviously, I don't think that celebrities should be allowed a little helicopter ride as a treat. Um, private jet use and helicopter use is actually one of the... Is, is, this form of transport is the most polluting form of transport you can take. And the interesting thing about private jet use is that it's going up. It's increased. And that is in direct proportion to our public transport's um, reliability decreasing. If you look at the UK, for example, the UK is the biggest uh, private jet and helicopter polluter in Europe. I think it's responsible for something like 20% of emissions. And in Europe, private jet and helicopter usage has doubled in the last three years. There's a specific reason. You look at our prime minister who choose, opts to take, I think, private jets one week. He took three in a week. There's all these headlines constantly about Rishi Sunak taking what would be an hour journey on a train via private jet. And then you look at the train services. It's very obvious that as train services or bus services are crumbling under, you know, not nationalized, but actually franchised out contracts that are not providing the services they should be doing, you know, cancelled trains, um, tickets are not available, something like a Vanti where you can only buy tickets three days ahead and there's this mad scramble, almost the same with Glastonbury tickets. Why am, why am I having to buy tickets for a Vanti in the same manner I would do for a festival like Glastonbury? It makes absolutely no sense. When you look at what train travel has been reduced in this country, which is unreliable, inconsistent, and faced with massive delays where it won't get you on time, the super rich, of course, are choosing to do what they can do, which is take very fast private transport they don't give a toss if it's polluting because they've argued to themselves that it's necessary in order to meet um, their needs at that point in time. Someone like Holly Willoughby can sit there. There's a reason she has the cognitive difference where she can sit there and say, the climate crisis is impacting the mental health of my children. And as a parent, I really want to do something. And also see no problem with taking a private helicopter to Glastonbury when she thinks the train will you know, either be cancelled, delayed, not get there on time. When I was coming back from Glastonbury, where I was representing the Vara Media, um, the trains that I was on, they were all over the place. We had a train, two trains that were delayed. There was one that they managed to divert to come to Castle Crary to pick us up. I didn't mind what time I got home. I'm not a rich person. It was fine. I was going to be taking the tube. I knew this was something I had to do anyway. But for somebody who could say, fuck it, actually, I'm going to get the helicopter and skip all this, you can see why when they have massive amounts of wealth, they would. And something we've talked about earlier in this show is that the rich are getting richer. You know, there are people who are still shielded from this crisis, the people who profited the most. It's not, you know, the middle classes who are getting those helicopters. It's the super rich. It's the sons and daughters of the oil and gas giants. It's the billionaires who've made loads of money speculating on grain prices after the war in Ukraine. It's these people who are traveling. And there's a reason why Harrods, the Harrods general manager or whatever his official title is, says that, you know, in a recession, the rich spend more because they actually have more money because they're profiteering off all of us getting poorer. And when we can't do anything to control prices, this helicopter issue is not separate from everything else we've talked about to do with economics in this show. And the one thing that it is doing is speeding us ever closer towards a climate crisis, which is why in order to tackle a climate crisis, you have to make it so that infrastructure like public transport, et cetera, is so top-notch and so sustainable that people are not going to want to take the other option. Unfortunately, we can't preach rich people into not doing this because if 
the alternative is somehow less efficient, you know, more inconsistent, morality goes away. We've talked about that too. You can't rely on morality alone to make people um, choose the correct or the option that is better for the greater good. You have to actually provide the greater good, the alternative for them to pick. You have to make public transport so good they don't need to take a helicopter or don't think they need to take a helicopter. They don't have another choice. They don't can't say that this is better than this one because the trains are actually running on time and they're clean and they're sustainable. So this all links together. It's, these are not separate issues. I kind of disagree a bit more because even if you had like Ooh. TGV high speed, no, but a helicopter is always going to be quicker than a train, right? It is clearly more convenient but for one person. But the point is we can't all do it. And, and I just feel like, I, I suppose the main issue for me is I find it bizarre that somebody can say that the climate crisis impacts the mental health of my three children and get a helicopter somewhere. I, I find it crazy. She could drive there, right? I'm not suggesting like, you can drive there. You can have a chauffeur-driven car there, air-conditioned. You can work in the back. You can do all sorts of things. I think that the helicopter, me, to me, is it's actually quite unusual within a British context. It's just like it's gratuitously wealthy and obscene, and like it's conspicuous consumption. We generally associate with with the US, and and the reason why it's really struck me here is because you have this incredible dissonance between what Holly Willoughby's done, which I'm sure she's done before, right? I'm sure it's not the first time, and what this festival is doing. And I am really angry about this because you've got right wing you know, shock jocks and commentators piling on Glastonbury saying, oh, it's all woke virtue signaling. They're not really serious about the climate crisis. Actually, they bloody well are because we've just listed the infrastructure they've built to reduce their carbon footprint. But that's ridden roughshod over by people like Holly Willoughby because she wants the most convenient way of getting there. And I, I frankly think what would be great if anybody, you know, connected to the senior management at Glastonbury, you know, is watching to ban this. Say, look, if you come to the site by helicopter, she arrived there, by the way, she wasn't coming back, she went there by helicopter. If you arrive by helicopter, you cannot enter. Because frankly, for me, it completely undermines and discredits all the good work that they're doing. Uh, maybe we'll make an exception for Elton John. Your, your final thought, Moya. I think if you look at the UK and the US, they both have really, or the U US even more so, there's a terrible um, rail system compared to other countries. You look somewhere like Sweden, everyone takes the train. It doesn't matter your level of wealth. The train is like the main form of transport there because it has been baked into the public consciousness that this is the reliable, the best way to travel. And I think, again, as I've said, the reason that is we're aping America is because our public transport system is crumbling in the same way the American one is. And celebrities are not going to unfortunately take the National Express all the way to Glastonbury. They just won't. The option is rail travel. That is the main thing, or driving, but I would say we don't want to encourage driving. So we need to make the rail system the fastest, most brilliant thing possible. It can be done. If you look at the, you know, the Scandinavian countries I mentioned, everyone takes the train because the train is brilliant. Whereas if you look at America, the train is very expensive. It doesn't go to all these places. And the car, the entire country is built around the car. So of course you have people like Taylor Swift who decide to take their private jet everywhere. There are models out there that show that if you provide the train, people will take it. Um, and I do think that it, it, my original point, in my opinion, still stands. With the US, it's a huge country, right? And, and it, the UK is not a big place. I find this so strange. Uh, we will disagree on just that for this evening, more. There was a lot of uh, 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 concord and uh, and um, agreement on other subjects. So I think we can we can uh, we can survive just the one point of disagreement. Moya Lothian McLean, thanks for joining me this evening. Thank you so much. And thank you for the Concord joke. I really enjoyed that. And thanks everyone for watching us this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. I believe Michael Walker's back. I don't know. 
Uh, but for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.